0: Today on CityCast Pittsburgh. Jury selection is starting for the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting trial. The defendant, and we will not be using his name, is accused of killing 11 people from three congregations during worship services in 2018. It was the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. We're with someone for whom this is all deeply personal. David Harris is a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's Jewish. He's lived in Squirrel Hill near the synagogue for a very long time, and he's been using his knowledge of the legal system and his own community to help advise and educate for the 1027 Healing Partnership, which formed after the attack to help support anyone who'd been affected. This trial will take months, and it's going to be really hard. We're here to talk about what happens next. It's Monday, April 24th. I'm Megan Harris, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. David, I think something that's so important when we start conversations around what happened in 2018, a lot of people still refer to it as the tree of life shooting. Even Wikipedia called it that for a long time. I was actually really heartened to see that that had been changed. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important to you, to folks in the community and to Pittsburgh that we not refer to it that way?
1: Yeah, this is something I learned through my work with the 1027 Healing Project. We all referred to it as Tree of Life, but it turned out there were three congregations that were housed in that building. And all of those congregations were impacted by the violence and murder that day. And the uh, the other congregations, Dor Hadash and New Light, they had the feeling that when people referred to it just as the tree of life massacre or something like that, that they were erased, that they were left out uh, uh, of important uh, discussions and that their losses were not recognized. So they have asked that people refer to it in a different way. And I think that's a very reasonable request.
0: Absolutely. Um, So we're going to honor that today. Um, You know, jumping to the trial, which of course starts today, we know who did it. He offered to plead guilty. Why are we going through this as a community Um, and, you know, the survivors? Why is this something that we all get to live through?
1: Well, the short answer is that the government, this is a federal trial, has requested uh, that the jury considered this as a death penalty case, a capital mm-hmm. case. And when that is true, uh, we have many more steps that we have to go through uh, for any kind of a death penalty trial. We can talk about that uh, separately if you like. Um, the, the reason we're going through a trial at all, though, is because the defense has made clear that they would plead guilty if if the government took the death penalty off the table. If they said this will not be a capital case in exchange for pleading guilty to every charge, my understanding is that the defense would do that in a heartbeat. Uh, But the government made a decision after considerable deliberation in the federal system from hearing from the victims uh, and uh, and their families, and from hearing from the defense, that this should be tried as a death penalty case, and therefore we're going to go through the entire um, process of hearing it as a capital case.
0: And I heard that this case is it's going to be multiple phases over what I That's guess right. we're expecting to be three months, why so long? and and I guess how do those phases work?
1: Yeah, it will be very long, uh, something like three months. Um, In any kind of a case with this kind of great notoriety, um, you would have a very much longer than usual jury selection process. And that's the first thing that's going to happen. Starting with uh, April 24th, there will be jury selection that we expect to continue for something like two to three weeks. And there are many other questions you have to ask a potential juror in a capital case and in a very notorious case. Uh, in order to have the possibility of seating a jury that will work. But beyond that, death penalty trials are just different. Phase number one is guilt. Did the defendant do this crime or not? And that's very much like any regular case, any murder case, even a burglary case. I mean, it's just, was there enough evidence to prove the defendant's guilt of these charged crimes beyond a reasonable doubt? Then you effectively have a second trial called the penalty phase. And in that phase, the jury, same jury too, decides whether or not the defendant deserves a death sentence or life in prison without parole. And that is done- with the use of aggravating and mitigating evidence. Aggravating, just like it sounds, these are things about a killing Uh, or a crime that make it more eligible for the death penalty. And mitigating factors, things that pull you away from the death penalty. So examples, aggravating factors, multiple victims, vulnerable victims, particularly egregious killings. Mitigating factors might be things about the killer's uh, childhood traumas or mental illness or things like that. And the jury in the second phase weighs these one against the other and comes up with a verdict.
0: You know, as we're thinking about how this, you know, affected the community, all of Pittsburgh, I think, knows where they were when we heard the news about this. Yes. Um, But certainly anyone in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood feels it on a, a, a deep, visceral level. Is it even possible to have an impartial juror in Pittsburgh on a case like this?
1: Well, it's a great question, Megan, and I want to note that the defense has moved for a change of venue out of I this federal I remember that, yeah, district, some months,
0: oh, gosh, probably more than a year ago
1: now. Yeah, and the judge denied the request. Here's the, here's the issue. In uh, federal court, the state is divided into three areas, eastern, middle, and western. And the western district where this case is going to be tried is our 26 westernmost counties in Pennsylvania. So it isn't just Pittsburgh. But let's face facts. This case is well-known, not in a positive sense, but well-known, not just in Western Pennsylvania, but everywhere. Everybody from Ohio to California to Florida to Maine, they're all going to know this case. So you're not going to be able to find a juror who doesn't know anything about it. What the jury selection process is designed to do is not to find a juror who doesn't know anything about it, but to find jurors who will commit to being fair. And what that comes down to is I'm not going to go on any preconceived notions or on any information that I already had. I'm going to follow the law and the facts as they come to me in this courtroom as I am instructed by the judge and as I hear it out of the mouths of the witnesses. I'm not going to bring in the things that I knew before, and I'm certainly not going to be reading the internet or the newspaper or anything else. I'm going to make my judgment based on this. And that's what we're looking for in a jury. It's impossible to find people who don't know about this.
0: Yeah. Well, and I want to talk a little bit about the charges that this person is facing. Um, They're a little different than some other mass shooting cases. When and how did it become possible for someone to be tried for something like a hate crime? Um, And how does the unique circumstances maybe of this case, um, you know, xenophobia, a fear of what, you know, this person had described as migrant caravans, I'm using air quotes there, those compounding factors, how does that affect this case and the specific charges that this person is facing?
1: Yes, it's, that's another good one. Um, there are over 60 charges in the indictment against this defendant. 22 of them are what we'll call capital eligible. They carry the death penalty. And 22 isn't an accident. There were 11 victims. And there are two counts that are death eligible for each of the 11 victims, thus 22. Um, these death counts... Possible death counts are for obstruction of the free exercise of religious beliefs resulting in death and 11 counts of hate crimes resulting in death. The the hate crimes are under the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act, a relatively recent statute. This is in federal court, so we're using federal charges. Pennsylvania where the whole thing happened has relatively weak hate crime statutes. And one of the things about the federal government going ahead with this instead of the state is that the federal government can charge these kinds of hate crimes that are death eligible. And so, uh, those kinds of hate crimes. It has to be motivated by a person's uh, religion, ethnic group, racial group, that sort of thing. Uh, And then exercise of religious beliefs, that's pretty obvious too.
0: So that would include then anti-Semitism or the fact that this took place in a house of worship?
1: Yeah, that, that this man was attacking people in a house of worship, uh, intending to obstruct their exercise of religion. It was Sabbath morning, they were gathering for Sabbath services. It fits like a glove on these facts. And so, yeah, these were uh, seem to, to be the right kind of statutes if you're going to charge a capital case in a case like this. And you're asked about anti-Semitism generally and the motivation, this man expressed uh, uh, feelings not just about uh, hatred of Jews, but about hatred of immigrants. And I think what's so important to understand about that, um, uh, this uh, uh, congregation, Dor Kadash, expressed support for immigrants uh, through the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, H-I-A-S. This is mm-hmm. an organization that has existed for decades and decades, um, uh, predating World War II, uh, and has worked to bring immigrants uh, through the asylum process, so when they've been in danger in other countries, immigrants from everywhere. First, it was oriented to Jews, but then to migrants of all nations. Um, And What the defendant is kind of stuck in and referring to when he combines the hatred of Jews and the hatred of immigrants is this great conspiracy theory called the replacement theory. And Mm -hmm. this demonstrates, the the idea of the replacement theory is that Jews are somehow the puppet masters replacing white people with immigrants in this country uh, to the benefit of Jews and other elites. Uh, None of this is true, of course, but it's been a long-running anti-Semitic trope. And what it shows you is that anti-Semitism is not just Jew hatred or religious prejudice of some kind. It is also a conspiracy theory. And it always has been. And people use this to explain their world to themselves in this terribly destructive way. And we can see the results in these murders.
0: So not long after this shooting, people started talking and to survivors, asking families of the victims whether they could forgive the attacker. I am not a religious scholar, you know that obviously. Um, but this feels to me like an inherently, I don't know, sort of Christian question. Like it, it's just it drips of evangelical norms. Um, there can be a lot of interpretations, of course, about how to have these conversations, but. I, how does Judaism address questions of forgiveness and justice when something like this has been taken from them?
1: It's it's um, it's important to, to think about this. You know, I think a lot of people might have been thinking about what they saw in the aftermath of some of these murders at black churches, particularly Mother Emanuel in South Carolina. I, yeah. I remember seeing the survivors saying in court that they forgave the killer. And people were sometimes mystified, sometimes very moved by that. I'm no religious scholar either. I know some, but I'm not one. (laughs) I do know this though. Uh, The idea of forgiveness in Judaism implies at the very least work on both sides when a person has been hurt. We say on the holiday of Yom Kippur, the the, uh, Day of Atonement, we we say uh, uh, God forgives the sins that man commits against God, but as far as sins against each other, uh, we have to work at that between people. And so forgiveness implies that the person who did wrong is asking to be forgiven, is saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And that the person who has been wronged is willing to come along on that journey. And it is a journey of work to forgive in a case where it has been wrong. And the more serious the wrong, of course, the more work it is. To simply say, well, why don't these people forgive? Uh, really doesn't show an understanding of the Jewish tradition or the Jewish teaching is about forgiveness. So uh, many religions, many uh, belief systems could have different ideas about forgiveness. Uh, And I'm, I'm not making the case for one or the other. I'm simply saying that's really not how it works in Judaism. It is a process in which a person wants to atone And in which another is willing to hear that and they work toward atonement.
0: Well, and David, do we know if the defendant has taken any steps to atone for his actions um, or maybe what the plan is for his legal defense?
1: I don't know of any steps he has taken towards atonement, as we would say, uh, understand that uh, in in Jewish uh, learning. Um, We know that his defense will not be an insanity defense. And we know that the whole game, if you will excuse me for using that word, yeah. but the whole thing for the defense is all about avoiding the death penalty. We know who did this. We know how we did it. Um, it's not a question of his guilt, though the whole guilt phase must be run in the customary way because if you don't do that, you don't get to the penalty phase. But the defense's entire focus is on avoiding the death penalty. And that will be done by putting in evidence uh, to mitigate the possibility uh, uh, that he will receive the death penalty. It will include, uh, I understand, uh, evidence of his having uh, epilepsy, of his having some uh, variety of schizophrenia, of having some traumatizing events early in his life. I don't know what else particularly, But it's all about persuading the jury, if they can, not to give them the death penalty. There really isn't anything else to contest. Though it will look like it, that's it. Well,
0: what does Judaism say about the death penalty?
1: Yes, um, it's a very, very deep question. If you look at the Torah, the Old Testament, the five books, uh, you will see uh, uh, instances of capital punishment, I am told, by scholars of that. Uh, of, the, of those books. Um, but Judaism generally does not impose, doesn't look to impose, looks to avoid imposing uh, the taking of another life. We all think of an eye for an eye, uh, but that's not usually accurate in the way most people think of it as justifying capital punishment. Um, and the major Jewish organizations uh, in the United States, anyway, Uh, have taken a position against capital punishment for many years uh, that is not justified and should be avoided. Uh, Now, having said that, it's very important to include this. Um, The people who may be wronged by an individual incident of violence or murder, like the families who have lost somebody in the October 27th killings, they get to respond as who they are From their own perceptions of the world and the law and their own needs and their own views of justice. So when I say that Jewish organizations generally don't support capital punishment, this implies nothing about the individual people. That is up to them.
0: Yeah. Well, and the families are not a monolith. They have differing opinions about this. Um, How are their feelings on the matter being taken into account? Um, not just the sentencing portion, perhaps, but just the whole conversation around how we're, we're dealing with this.
1: You know, um, you're absolutely right. They don't all feel the same way about this. There were nine families involved because uh, in two instances, uh, there were two brothers uh, mm-hmm. and there was a married couple. So nine. Yeah. And of those nine families, seven support the request for capital punishment. One of the congregations have been pretty outspoken against capital punishment in this case and others Uh, others have not taken that position and because of that i think there's been some confusion and uh, there have been uh, articles written statements made by public figures including the governor of pennsylvania Who
0: himself is Jewish. Who
1: himself is Jewish. And he said, you know, look, I've sat with the families and they don't favor capital punishment. And he said this in the context of announcing his own position on it. And I can tell you when things like that happen, having worked with these families just a little bit, it is really traumatizing to them. They feel ignored, erased, uh, they feel disregarded. They feel like somebody else is speaking for them and they're not being hurt. Somebody is telling them, this is what's good for you. Uh, and they have had to numerous times very publicly come out and say, don't speak for us.
0: Yeah. How are folks doing now as the case is, you know, finally getting underway, um, There's some upsetting details that are probably going to be talked about that are going to be part of this case. What are you hearing from the folks that you work with, with the Healing Partnership and just in your neighborhood?
1: Well, I think it depends on who you are. It's very individual. Uh, the, uh, The families of the victims and the people who survived, who were also shot, I mean, they're not and all looking forward to this experience you know if there's a way to say the exact opposite of that that's where they are they know this is going to be very difficult and traumatizing and then if you get to the next circle out it's going to be traumatizing for everyone for all of pittsburgh particularly the jewish community and so nobody is looking at this like this is going to be a great three months to be hearing about this a lot um, I think what people, what, you know, uh, the, the most important thing is to, uh, for everybody to know that they are individuals and they may feel like they should track the trial closely or that they can't uh, track it closely, uh, that it'll be too hard for them. Um, I know that feelings differ within the small community of survivor families. Will they be there every day or will they not? Uh, Can they stand that because you're right? There are just some awful awful details that are going to come out and be testified to and it won't be uh, anything uh, that anybody wants to hear Um, and because of that the 1027 healing partnership is really has provided a lot of support for folks in many different forms whether it's individual counseling a group therapy Uh, group solidarity exercises of all kinds, and uh, uh, in the coming weeks, people uh, in the community will be wearing blue ribbons on their clothing to show that kind of solidarity. And, you know, what we're encouraging people to do is if you know somebody, uh, maybe somebody who's Jewish or you know somebody who has been directly uh, affected, even if they're not uh, part of a survivor family, to simply say, I'm thinking of you or just being kind to each other generally in the community, being together. I mean, that's a huge, huge support for people. You don't have to do anything or say anything in particular. Just be there, be there to support understand that this is a very, very difficult time for everybody. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting to me, I mean, for for the two classes that I did for the entire community uh, about criminal trials and about the death penalty in preparation for this, the objective of those classes was to give people real facts and information so that they would know what to expect. And they could be stronger and they could not be upset by every little detail and the strength would build resilience and we could be there and be there for each other. Uh, We could have written that stuff down in some kind of a long uh, pamphlet. We could have put it in a video or something. But being in that space together, the physical space, learning together, having questions answered together, thinking together, um, there was something that was just extra powerful about that. And I think the lesson of that for me has been connection with people and yeah. and and taking care to be there for people in any circumstance is kind of the way that we'll get through this together
0: david harris is a pit law professor and the legal system advisor and educator for the 1027 healing partnership um, if you or others are feeling especially affected by the trial this week by what happened four years ago um, we'll have links in our show notes for where you can seek support Thanks, David.
1: My pleasure, Megan.
0: And we want to take a moment to acknowledge our neighbors who died that day. Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabenowitz, Cecil and David Rosenthal, Bernice and Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, Irving Younger. Their names will not be forgotten. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you're liking the show, do us a favor and do something nice for someone today. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. We'll talk to you then.